marks uh, one year, there we go, since we've been back in the theater. So we had, uh, yes, please clap for that. Thank you. <clears throat> we had, um, like many other people, obviously, to uh, figure out how to do church during um, the pandemic and, and the heavier lockdowns at the beginning of that. And then, of course, we uh, we were at Bet Havram, which is the, the synagogue here in town for a little while. We were out uh, at the park where uh, we've spent a lot of time as a church just over here. And then it was a year ago that we started meeting again uh, in the theater. I just was reflecting on that this morning um, because time is weird. And we're going to talk about time this morning. Uh, time has really gotten warped, right, during, uh, during this sort of COVID and post-COVID uh, world that we've been living in. And it feels like a really long time ago that we had our like, hey, we're back in the theater, we're relaunching the theater gathering, and at the same time, like, the last year has gone by real quick. Anybody else have that sort of experience? So I think it's always worth mentioning those things and just sort of remembering the journey that we've been on for the last couple of years and the gift that it is to be able to meet together uh, inside as we are this morning. All right, Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 6. And we're going to read through 13. You can read along with me in your physical Bible. It will also be up here on the screen. Well, Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, listen to this. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world's, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come in to our time uh, this morning with many things on our mind. The, the new academic year that is beginning, the quarter that's about to start, uh, kids' activities, all these other things that are going on in our lives. Good, bad, we have... Uh, uh, joy and anticipation, we may also have anxiety and concern about the days and weeks in front of us. So God, we ask that you would take all the stuff that we bring in with us to this moment. All those things, God, would you hold them for us for a few moments so that we can be fully present here now. Tune our hearts to your voice, to your spirit, so that we can hear what it is that you want to say to us today. And then, God, give us the courage to act, to respond in whatever ways we need to respond. We pray this together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, well, for several years, my wife and I, we lived in Boston. And when I was living in Boston, I spent a lot of my time writing public transportation. And uh, one of the places that we lived, there was a house right in front of the bus stop. And it was one of those sorts of homes that you just don't really notice. And you don't notice it when you live in a city like Boston until the winter comes. You learn a lot about your neighbors when the winter comes in a city like Boston. So winter came, the snow fell, and these folks 
did not shovel the sidewalk uh, in front of the bus stop that I had to walk past every day. Now, for those of us who have maybe grown up in California or who have not lived in a snowy place, you might think, what's the big deal? But if you have ever lived in a cold and snowy place, you know this is a very big deal because the perilous minefield of treachery that you take your life into your own hands developed upon it. And so I had to walk past this every morning on my way to the bus stop. I developed a very uh, negative relationship with my neighbors during that winter, right? Well, then the spring came and the snow melted and so did my cold heart towards them. And then one day I'm going to the bus stop and I see this on, on the doors and the windows, this big sign that says condemned. Anybody ever seen one of these signs on a building before? Condemned. And it was just like, oh, that's why they didn't shovel because nobody was living in this home. There are some specific things that lead to a building being condemned. Legally, it means that a structure is deemed dangerous or unfit for human habitation due to fire hazards, unsanitary conditions, severe rodent and pest infestation, lack of basic facilities, faulty construction, or dilapidation. There may be a few of you, especially if you're a student, who are here who are like, wait a minute. <laughs> Again, no one was shoveling because no one was living there. That home had lost its structural integrity. It was no longer safe to inhabit. Now, the dictionary definition of the word integrity is the state of being whole and undivided. And I think, I mean, the dictionary nails it. This is exactly the idea that we are after in this new conversation that we are starting today. This desire to be whole and undivided. Oftentimes when we think of integrity, we think of like morality, right? People who do good things are people who have integrity, especially if they do them when no one is watching, right? And people who do bad things who are maybe morally questionable are people who lack integrity. Now, this is not necessarily wrong. This is not like a wrong definition, but I would, I would argue that it is a thin understanding of this idea of integrity. To be whole and undivided, I think, gets to the deeper truth here. And it definitely reflects the thicker teaching of Jesus. Jesus who said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We want to build structural integrity in our lives, in our faith, not just simply moral integrity, although again, that is a good thing. That's almost more of the outcome of this deeper truth of being whole and undivided. We're going for more than just following the rules. We want to be people of structurally sound faith, people who are built to last, people who can create safe and habitable space for others. Because at the core of a structurally sound life and faith is generosity. The, the big, big idea, if you will, for this conversation comes from this quote from Erwin McManus who says, wholeness is not found through receiving, but through giving. Wholeness and generosity 
are inseparably linked. Paradoxically, we become whole as we give ourselves away. Wholeness and generosity are inseparably linked. Ways, through very tangible ways that we can be generous and that, uh, through which we can take steps to leading a structurally sound, whole, undivided life. So we're going to look at our time, our talents, and our treasure. These tangible means, again, through which we can be generous, we can express love for God and love for our neighbors. All right, Matthew 26. Our story today takes place in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. If you were here with us last week, we talked a little bit about how often Scripture will mention places. And people's names and even their stories, right? Simon the leper, there's a story there. The power of place. The power of names. Transformative events taking place in homes. File that away. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Jesus is here in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper hanging out with his disciples. And this woman comes in and she pours this jar of perfume all over Jesus' head. And this moment raises, I don't know about you, but for me, whenever I read this story, all kinds of questions come, come rushing to the center. Does she sort of crash the party? Is Simon okay with this? Because his house just got a lot smellier and a lot messier. How does he respond to this? Then the question, why does she do this? Why does she choose now, this particular moment, to do this? And then I don't know about you, but there is something cool, right, about what she does. But man, the disciples seem to have a hard time with it. And so what is up with that? Why do they get so mad about this? And then why does Jesus come to her defense so strongly? There's obviously a lot going on here in this story. Now, on the surface... On the surface, this is a story about economics. Matthew, the, the author of, of this account of the life of Jesus, was a tax collector. He was someone very familiar with, with money and how much things cost. And it, it's not surprising that he sort of hones in on this part of the story. He points out to us that this was not just, you know, the like, and this is not meant to like degrade CVS, but this is not like the CVS perfume. Right, like this is this is the fancy stuff. This is expensive perfume, and and, and the disciples have this very like gut visceral like, oh, what is this? like? Don't she shouldn't be doing this, right? They're outraged, and, and the way that they express it is like, wow, this could have been used for a lot of other things, good things. Why this waste? They ask. So on the surface, this is a story about economics. Underneath the surface, though, I think the story is really about time, and it's about timing. The disciples, among other things, I, they're unhappy with the interruption. And if you're reading through the Matthew story, what comes right before this, and I'm, we're not totally sure how aware they were of this, but I, I'm guessing that at some level they were aware. Right before this, the, the first couple of verses of chapter 26, the plot is hatched to trap Jesus, right? To How are we going to arrest Jesus and, and kind of get rid of him because he's causing too much trouble? So I don't know exactly what they were expecting the, this moment to be, but this woman was not supposed to be the main event. 
right? The meal that they were going to share, I don't know if they were going to like talk about strategy, like, hey, the, the, they're coming for us. What are we going to do? I don't know if this was just supposed to be like, hey, let's ignore all the chaos out there and just have like a, let's just like have bro time, you know, and like chill out and not worry about all the things that are happening. Whatever it was that they expected, it wasn't this, right? It wasn't this woman making a smelly mess all over Jesus in the middle of our meal. This weird, uncomfortable moment. Jesus, though, I think, kind of hits on the issue of timing, right? The disciples are concerned about the resource piece of this. Jesus says, look, there are needs that are always present. Time. But my time is running out. And, and it's interesting, right? He doesn't say that the disciples are wrong, that it's a bad question. He, he just values this gesture in a very different way. Because she recognizes the weight of the moment. He says, this is preparing me for my death, my burial. The disciples are concerned with the budget and the details of ministry, but this woman recognizes like, oh, that, like something really big is about to happen. This was a worshipful thing done at exactly the right time. This is a story about time. Now, as 21st century Americans, we have a lot of issues with money. And we'll get to that in a couple weeks. So come back later. <laughs> we talk about our issues with money. But we also, we also have a lot of issues with time. Right? I think we need to confess a little bit some of our issues with time. A few weeks ago, as we ended our conversation at Ephesians, we talked about busyness. This was in the larger conversation of spiritual warfare and the powers and principalities, the spirits that we find. We talked about the spirit of busyness, this pressure to do more, to go faster, to be or at least to appear to be busy. Right? We don't even want to appear like we're not busy. And so we like, it's just our default, like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. Like, you may have, like, spent the last 48 hours sitting on a beach, but when someone asks you that question, oh, I'm busy, right? USA Today has been doing a multi-year poll since 1987. And what they have found is that every single year since 1987, the number of people who report being busy or not having enough time has gone up without fail year over year. In 1987, 50% of respondents reported having at least one meal at home with their family. By 2018, that had dipped to under 20%. What, what do people, the poll has asked, like, well, so if you're so busy, like, what are you giving up or what are you sacrificing to stay this busy or because you don't have enough time? 56% said sleep, 52% recreation, 51% hobbies, 44% time with friends, 30% time with family. Now, here is the irony of this situation. There's actually like a tremendous amount of studies out there about how we use time and how we think about time. The, the reality is, is that Americans actually have more time than they think that they have. We are taking more vacations, more time off. We're spending more time on our hobbies. We're spending more time with our kids than previous generations. We're spending more time at our kids' activities than previous generations. All the parents said... Amen. The issue is 
not the amount of time, it is our perception of time. Eric Helzer and Shai Davidi of Princeton, they're psychologists, they've coined the term toxic time, which is their way of naming the burden of expectations that we place on time and how those burdens sort of infect and impact our perception of time. How in particular when we choose to focus on something, especially at the expense of another thing, rather than enjoying and being kind of all in on the thing that we've chosen to do, we spend that time thinking about the thing that we are not doing. So when we're hanging out with our kids, we're thinking about, oh, I've got work email and this thing and that thing and my to-do list. And then when we're working on our work email or our to-do list, we're thinking, oh, my goodness, I should be spending time with my kids. And when we're watching TV, we're feeling guilty about not working out. And then when we're working out, we're wondering, I wonder what happens next on the TV show that I was watching last night. Right? And on and on it goes. We have this issue with perception of time. To use the disciples' words, we get to the end of our, our day, our week, our month, whatever it is, and we go, wow, like what happened? What a waste. Where did my time go? And what does this do to us? What does this do to us? It fractures us. It divides us. It undermines wholeness and integrity. Now, the goal this morning is not to heap guilt on, on us and we all walk out of here going, oh my gosh, I just need to get a calendar. Although there are calendars out on the table in the lobby if you need one. I don't even know how that worked out, but, but there you go. Some of us could, could use those. The goal this morning is not to walk out of here feeling guilty about how we use our time. The good news for us is that in the kingdom of God, time is valued in a different way. And so we need to grow in our kingdom perception of time. This woman does something beautiful at the wrong time, but in the kingdom of God, there is never a wrong time. There is never a bad time to reorient ourselves around Jesus. To worship, to choose intimacy, to choose right relationship with him and with other people. And what's really interesting about this, the way, we'll talk about this more in just a moment, but the way that those of you who have been in church for a while, how many times have you heard the gospel presented and this woman's story was told? Her story lives forever because she had a kingdom perspective of time. And I, I really believe that that is the, what Jesus is most pleased with here. It's not her sacrifice, which, by the way, was immense. I made the joke about the CVS uh, perfume earlier. This was not just like perfume that, you know, you, you put on when you go out to, to a party or a fancy event or whatever. This was her life. This was her security. This was her 401k. She just dumps it all over Jesus. It's an immense sacrifice. But I think that what Jesus is most pleased with is not the sacrifice, but her heart, her values, her kingdom perception to see the moment. Jesus' time is fleeting. He, he's, he's moving towards the end of the story, and she prepares him for that moment. She's a person of integrity whole, undivided, generous. 
And again, I want to I be clear. She's not a person of integrity because she does a morally good thing. There's actually a very interesting moral question at the heart of the story. And the disciples raise it. Could these resources have been used in a different way, in a better way, in a more efficient way? It's an interesting question. But Jesus is pleased. This is a beautiful thing, he says, because she prioritizes the most important thing, intimacy with Jesus, right relationship with God, leading to right relationship with others. A beautiful thing. Now, to get practical for a moment, I found that a time budget or a time audit can be a very helpful practice. Just like a financial budget, we can think that we are spending a certain amount of money, and then you actually track it, put it down on a piece of paper, look at it, look at the amount over a period of time, like a week, a month, or whatever, and you go, oh, wow, like I thought I was spending, I was only spending $10 on tacos. And it turns out that it was 50 This is a confession for me. Right? You don't know until you actually like, can see it and, and put it down on paper. Right? In the same way, there's, there, we have this sense of like, oh man, I don't have any time. And then you actually track your time and how you use it and you go, oh, wow. Like I actually do have a lot of time. That thing that I thought was taking all my time it doesn't actually take that much time. Or maybe you do your time out and you're like, whoa, I really am doing too many things. But until you actually track it and, and, and put some numbers on it, we can really trick ourselves into this. Now, tracking it is one part. The next part, though, is this is really, you know, gets to the heart of it. It's that big question, all right, so this is how I use my time. Does that line up with my values? Where is there misalignment or a lack of wholeness? If I say that I value academic success, but I never go to class or study, misalignment, right? If you say you value time with family, but then you're never with your family, something's off, right? So there will be some hard words integrity as we become more aware of how we are spending our time. But you will move towards integrity when you give your time to what you value most. Or in the words of Zadie Smith, this is the sermon right here. Time is how you spend your love. Time is how you spend your love. Now again, the good news is that when we are in love with Jesus, our time is transformed from wasteful to worshipful. And so we can work wholeheartedly as an act of worship. We can parent wholeheartedly as an act of worship. We can do our hobbies as an act of worship, as an expression of love. We can work out half-heartedly as an act of worship. Only a few of you are paying attention. (laughs) Time is how you spend your love. I want to end with this. One of our core values here at Discovery is relationships. People. Our primary invitation all the time is to community. But community, relationships, deep friendships with people, they take time. Every now and then we meet that one remarkable person where you just like click right away. But most of the time, 
it takes time, right, to get to that level with people. And so being generous with our time towards one another is one very real way that we can love each other, that we grow in relationship with each other, that we become more whole and more integrated. Now, the primary space for us here at Discovery is what we call neighborhood communities. And you heard uh, Jeff and Janine tell a little bit about that earlier. And we also talked about this last week. But once again, I just want to say a couple of things about this. First of all, for a lot of us, myself very much included, this is a muscle that has atrophied a bit, right? This meeting midweek in homes with other people to process life, share meals, uh, and grow in friendship with each other has been something that I think we have lost in a lot of ways over the last couple of years. And so the goal for us this fall is simply to rebuild that muscle, get back into that rhythm of regularly spending time together in neighborhoods, in homes, named places. Right? Remember the story begins in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Right? In North Davis at the Palmers. These are where real, these are places and moments where life transformation really happens. Now, as you heard earlier, we have this little card. It's out on the connection table. If you are not connected yet to a group, you can go fill this out. If you're like, I don't know which neighborhood I live in, uh, the connections team would be happy to, to help you with that. And, and um, we'll get you uh, hooked up with one of those groups as soon as possible. But I just got to say this too, like uh, it does take courage to join a community like this. It's one thing to come on a Sunday morning, and we love Sunday morning and have a high value on the Sunday morning worship gathering, but the, the real stuff happens in neighborhood communities. But man, showing up at somebody's house, right? You're not quite sure if it's the right door. You're knocking on this door. Uh, then you're invited into a stranger's living room for an hour and a half. Their, their house smells funny. Their kid's room is a mess. Their dog is rude. Again, this is just my house that I'm talking about. And then there's these moments where, where you, you process stuff and you, you spend this time together and, and like the heavens open up and it's awesome. And then there's other times where it's like, what, what are we doing? Right? What a waste. But it is in that regular choosing relationship, choosing community, budgeting the time to spend together that we grow in right relationship with that we see, we learn more about what it means to be in right relationship with God. That we see and experience transformation happening in our own lives and in the lives of the people that we are with. Let's budget time for neighborhood community gatherings, trusting that Jesus looks at this and says, you are doing a beautiful thing. You are doing a beautiful thing. When we choose to be generous with our time, we take a big step towards wholeness, towards right relationship with God and with each other, a big step towards integrity. Now the band's going to come back. They're going to lead us in a couple of songs as we close our time together this morning. Um, we're also going to take communion. And the way we're going to do this today is during the, these closing songs, whenever you are ready, you can come to one of the four stations here around the theater. And you can take the elements back to your seat. And when, again, whenever you're ready, Take and eat the body and blood of Jesus. We have uh, gluten-free over here, just FYI, and then the rest are, I guess, gluten-full.
Here's what I want us to, to sit with, though, as we move towards the table together. The disciples see the, this woman's actions, and they say, what a waste. Then Jesus affirms her, and again, at the end, he says what? He says, wherever the gospel is preached, this woman's story will be told. What does he mean? Why, why does he say that? I think it's because what she does is the gospel. Right? This, this wasteful act doesn't make sense. The timing is all wrong, and yet it is exactly the right thing. It is the thing that is needed. In the same way, Romans 5, 6 says, at exactly the right moment, Christ died for us. God's wasteful act of sending Jesus, Jesus stepping out of his perfect community called the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, to be with us, to live with us for 30 years, then to teach us about this new way of living, this thing called the kingdom of God, and then ultimately to give himself, to die in our place, and to overcome our sin, our broken relationship between us and God through his resurrection. Right, the scandal of the cross, the wastefulness of the cross, God giving himself up. But it was exactly the right time and it was exactly what was needed to restore us. And in the same way, that, uh, this woman, what she does is a picture of that story. It is a story about the story. This wasteful expression of her love and generosity towards God. As we come to the table this morning, maybe you just need to sit with that truth. Oh my goodness, what has God done for me? The, the wasteful, extravagant love of God that we receive, that we remember when we take communion. And then in what ways can I participate in that love and in that generosity, sharing that with others? When you're ready, come and take communion as we worship together.